0: They targeted uh, Poppy's Restaurant in Melville, they targeted Jolly Cool's Pub in Parkhurst, which was the first attack, and then they targeted the Revelers, New Year's Eve Revelers, who were having a party on Mary Fitzgerald Square. And
1: that is why we know who they are. Let me put it that way. We know who they are. we know most of it, but the thing is, we, we just can't, you, you plug one over, and then you get yeah. political violence. And we have to sit and because you went out, I did absolutely nothing wrong. I went out as any other citizen of South
2: Africa. In the minds of most South Africans, the potential for a terrorist attack on home soil is slim to none. But what if I told you that terrorist cells are in fact already operational in South Africa and that as we speak our National Defence Force, Hawks and Police are trying to hold back the spread of Islamic extremism. South African soldiers have been involved in battles against forces of an Islamic-backed insurgency in Mozambique for months. During a military operation codenamed Buffalo, the South African National Defence Force, along with Allied Southern African Development Community, or SADC, countries, reported that soldiers destroyed enemy bases, captured hundreds of weapons and fighters, and released several hostages. During a press briefing, South African National Defence Force Chief General Ruzani Mupwanya outlined Operation Buffalo's major successes.
3: These operations led to a capture and destruction of several al-Suna al Wajama uh, terrorist bases in the area east of Chai settlement and the river Misalo in Migomia district in Cabo Delgado province. During these operations, 31 terrorists were, t- were killed while 16 women, 8 children and 2 elderly males Believed to have been abducted by terrorists, were rescued. Furthermore, Samim forces confiscated weapons that include the RPG 7s, PKM machine guns, and 48 AK 47s rifles, as well as grenades. Samim forces met strong resistance from the terrorists, but were able to inflict fatal casualties and disrupt Al Sanyo activities, as well as continue to dominate. And pursue the terrorists in the operational area.
2: Today, on Boots on the Ground, behind South Africa's biggest headlines, we wade into the discreetly expanding world of the Islamic State and its spread from Syria to Southern Africa. We will discuss how our own government is repatriating Islamic State extremists right from Syrian refugee camps how these groups are reforming on home soil and terrorizing local peaceful Islamic communities, and how law enforcement agencies are woefully unable to track the rapidly expanding cells. For Boots on the Ground, I am your host, Paige Muller. Before we can really appreciate what it means to have the Islamic State operating here in South Africa, we need to understand what the Islamic State is and what its operations meant for Syria. Graham Hoskin is one of Time's Live's investigative reporters, and he's been one of the reporters tracking the expansion of the Islamic State for this project.
0: So the Islamic State is a violent extremist group. Which formed in about one thousand nine hundred and ninety nine, early two thousands, through its leaders and through extensive propaganda and social media campaigns, drew literally tens of thousands of people from across the world, from Europe, and the Americas, Asia, Africa, including South Africa and Mozambique, and with the collapse of the Islamic State's caliphate and territory in. 2019, beginning of 2019 and and 2018, those fighters and their families who had flocked to Syria and Iraq, where it was establishing itself, have begun to return home. While many are in refugee camps in Syria, thousands more over the years have managed to to basically go back to their homes. And from their homes or um, other territories where they've tried to set up caliphates, and from where they've resettled, they have then gone on to carry out terrorism attacks and acts of extremism. And this is what we're seeing now across Africa with Islamic State Central African Province, which is based in the DRC—that's the Democratic Republic of Congo. We're seeing um, ISIS claims in Mozambique in the northern province of Cabo Delgado, and yeah, we see, uh, basically what's what's terrifying about this and the emergence of the Islamic State or affiliates or sympathizers with the Islamic State is that it's right on our borders. We had a briefing by the chief of the South African National Defense Force um, earlier this month who said if the situation is not brought under control, there's a very serious and very real risk of these kind of attacks spilling over into South Africa. And from the investigations that the team and I have been been working on, we are already seeing these, these forms of low-scale attacks. We're seeing them with financing, um, the Financial Intelligence Center expressing huge and serious alarm around the generation of finances for Islamic State activities across Africa and elsewhere in the world. We're also seeing mosques being radicalized and places of worship being radicalized by ISIS supporters and ISIS sympathizers. And this radicalization is leading to new recruits on top of that we've got the problem of former isis fighters and their families being repatriated from syria and iraq where they were fighting and being repatriated back home here to south africa so it's bringing the threat of isis and the extremist affiliates that that associate themselves with isis closer and closer to home
2: The prospect of these groups succeeding in expanding further south is so concerning that the South African National Defence Force has deployed 500 troops, with an additional 1,495 on standby for deployment. All of this, while South Africa itself is currently in a national state of disaster as a result of the major flooding in KwaZulu-Natal and other provinces. But despite all of these efforts, the South African government, as Graham mentioned, is simultaneously repatriating hundreds of South Africans and their families who for years fought for and aided the Islamic State in Syria, providing them new identity documents and the means to resettle. What the team and
0: I discovered during our investigation is that government, through the Department of International Relations and the Department of Home Affairs, as well as the State Security Agency, are running a program which repatriates South Africans who have gone over to Syria to fight, either fight for ISIS or to support ISIS. Um, It was people who, men who were fighting, women who were fighting, women who were providing material support, women and their kids who had gone across They'd gone to go and join ISIS and live in the caliphate that ISIS was trying to create, which fell across Syria and Iraq. Now with the collapse of the caliphate in 2019, you had tens of thousands of people from throughout the world who were trapped basically in this, what was to be the caliphate. And these people were then put into refugee camps. Some, like the, the fighters, were put into prisons in, in places like Iraq, other countries, but they were basically sitting in limbo. Now, when it came to the South Africans, many wanted to come back. And because when they'd gone across to Syria to go and join ISIS and, and the caliphate, a lot of them, not even a lot of them, all of them, when I mean, we're talking about hundreds, potentially over 400, had um, renounced their South African citizenships. They'd been... Either forced to or willingly, torn up their passports, torn up their identity documents, and pledged allegiance to ISIS and, the, and its caliphate. Now, with the collapse of the caliphate, this meant that you have people who are South Africans who are stuck in these refugee camps who now want to go come home. And what what we discovered that has been happening since twenty nineteen, and this is this has been confirmed through through sources of ours, both within state security agency sources within crime intelligence sources within the hawks sources within the police that despite extreme resistance from law enforcement agents who were warning that there was going to be potential problems potentially attacks further radicalization of other uh, south africans the government began bringing these people home and since 2019 we've discovered that hundreds have been been, been brought home i mean in 2019 and just over 95, um, almost 100 people were brought back. We've learned that the remainder have been coming back in in drips and drabs. Um, apparently 30 at a time, sometimes 15, up to 45, uh, groups of 45 people or, or more. And when they've been brought back, they've been given new passports um, and new identity documents, although it's still... They still have their old ID numbers. So the ID numbers that they had before they left to go to Syria and to Iraq and to um, join ISIS.
2: Law enforcement in general is not happy about this repatriation project and have warned that the consequences of this project being done and done half-heartedly could lead to the radicalization of our own local communities. A Hawks counter-terrorism investigator took Graham into his confidence to share his concerns and grievances on the matter. To protect his identity and his livelihood, we've masked his voice and will be calling him Jack.
0: I've known Jack for years. He works within the Crimes Against the State Unit, within the Hawks, and I know that he's been investigating anti-terrorism cases, terrorism cases, extremists, uh, both religious extremists and right-wing extremists. I approached him in regards to the story that we were working on, which was looking into the Islamic State in South Africa. You know, how big it is, how many followers it has, why it's getting big in South Africa.
2: So Jack explains that the issue with the families of former Islamic State combatants coming back to South Africa is that while intelligence agencies know who they are, They simply don't have the manpower to continue monitoring all these potential threats. Like I mentioned before, we've had to alter Jack's voice so he will be a little bit less clear than normal. Please listen closely.
1: A lot went, a lot came back and there was nothing done to them, nothing happened to them. They went to fight and there was never any prosecution.
0: Even though it was known that there were... How many actually fought there?
1: Oh, there was a couple, and there's
0: still a lot that's in the camps and trying to get back to South Africa. I've, I've heard that apparently the guys that are coming back have been granted immunity from prosecution.
1: No, they just, there's a lack of prosecution, it's not an immunity. It's
0: just... mm. What, I mean, what would you prosecute them with?
1: Foreign military assistance.
0: Mm. Mm. So you could prosecute them under the Foreign Military Assistance Act?
1: And you can prosecute them in the Porta Tara. Um, ah, section 3 is the uh, giving assistance. One of okay. the charges that the Tulsa Federica uh, So, giving assistance to a terrorist organization. I really but it was just never... It was a lack of investigation and a lack of the world, I could say, to prosecute them. intelligence we we know who they are. Well, let me put it that way: we know mm-hmm. who they are. We know most of it, but the thing is, we, we just can't. You, you plug one hole and, there's a, and then you get political violence, and we have to circumvent. The German guys had that problem. They fought. There, they only four investigators. Sure. If you look at the Americans, they work on, on one target with a team of 20, 30 people, which is your cell phone guys, your intelligence, your surveillance. We've mm. got one or two of mm. maybe if you're lucky, that carries investigation. So it's it's difficult. And I know we always moan, we're understaffed, underpaid, but, but that is a fact. If you want to make a difference, you have to put in the risk. And that's not just us, not just against the state That's everything everything that the DPCI is, is, is involved in. So it, it's, it's a difficult thing. I don't want to moan about it. We, we make do with what we have.
0: How difficult is it to investigate these?
1: No, they've moved from conventional phones to phoning on websites finding okay. on telegram. Yeah. So they've also adapted. They, yeah. uh, most of the stuff is online. You get a code to get into a, a page, or. Yeah. And if you're not close, related to them, or you haven't been part of the operations,
2: mm. they don't let you in. So it's just getting more and more difficult. Those South Africans who are guilty of terrorism or aiding terrorists across South Africa's borders are not prosecuted upon their return. Why not? Well, we aren't really sure. Jack explains that people aiding and abetting terror organizations or foreign militaries, either in or from South Africa or while abroad, can be prosecuted under the protection of Constitutional Democracies Against Terrorism and Related Activities Amendments, or the Foreign Military Assistance Act, but these prosecutions aren't happening leaving those responsible free to act as Islamic State recruiters, soldiers, or funders within our own borders.
0: And the problem, and this is, this is what a lot of people are warning about, including experts, tourism experts, security experts, is that South Africa doesn't have a de-radicalization program. De-radicalization is basically left up to the communities from where the people who joined ISIS in South Africa came from. Um, so there's no formal de-radicalization. It's not like, you know, Mary or Joe or, or, or Johannes comes back and they then go through a de get debriefed by, by government. They then swear allegiance back to, to South Africa and pledge to uphold the constitution and protect the, the laws and obey the laws of the land. I mean, you just, we'd find out that people just come back and, hey, presto, you're back in society, you know, you, Do your own thing, carry on with life as, as normal. And law enforcement sources that we were speaking to saying, you know, it's, you're creating a really dangerous situation. And that dangerous situation is that these, these people haven't been de radicalized, if that's even possible. Um, you know, and added to that, the, the police just do not have enough officials. There aren't enough crime intelligence agents. There aren't enough state security agents. There aren't enough hawks officers to monitor those who, who are coming back. And people think, oh, you know, it's 400 people. But now you can you imagine 400 people across the world, across the country. Um, it's a monumental task to try and, and do. And the big fear is a lot of these people who've been brought back and repatriated at taxpayers' expense have, have either continued with the activities that they were doing when they were in Syria, or proselytizing and and preaching the the ideology to radicalize more people in South Africa to join ISIS.
2: So Graham, if we are too overwhelmed to handle all the prosecutions, the de-radicalization, or to keep a close eye on these potential dangerous entities, why is the South African government going to all the effort to bring them back? It sounds like we're creating a threat that we can't handle. It's an absolute
0: mystery. I mean, we, we asked repeatedly to the Department of International Relations and Cooperation and the Department of Home Affairs as to why they were doing it. These are the two departments behind it. And we were never never given an answer. I mean, the Department of Home Affairs simply ignored us. Three weeks later, four weeks later, we're still waiting for a response. A response that we got from the Department of International Relations and Cooperation was laughable. I mean, they said it's a complex issue and they're waiting for responses from other government departments and therefore they can't provide us with an answer. I mean, those who went across, when they when they left South Africa, they renounced their citizenship. They tore up passports, they tore up their identity documents, and they basically ceased to become South African citizens. Now, when the caliphate falls, it's, oh no, we want to come home. And hey, Priester, they were given passports, identity documents, and allowed to come back, and it's just it's just an absolute mystery as to why this has been allowed to happen.
2: Since the repatriation project began, nearly 400 Islamic State fighters and their family members have returned from Syrian refugee camps, and another 100 are apparently waiting to return home. According to the National Prosecuting Authority spokesperson, advocate Mtunzi Mahaga, since 2010, only two people have been successfully prosecuted for Islamic State related activities. But according to Jack, the Islamic State in South Africa is very much alive and well, and can be linked to several small-scale operations here on home soil, and are actively recruiting and funding other operations throughout Africa. Times Live Investigations has learned that police investigating four separate shootings in Johannesburg on New Year's Eve of 2020, which detectives initially thought were unrelated, classified them as Islamic State terror attacks in March of this year, linking them to an eight-member cell. The classification had not been made public before our team's articles went out.
0: What, What attacks were those? Oh, the new year shooting
1: That one, there was a... Was that
0: both the poppies and... All. there was four scenes that night. What was what a poppies? So
1: it was Parkhurst, they started in Parkhurst at Jolly Cools, then it was poppies, then it was off the Merifix General Bridge, and then they went into the city and they shot a Shabin type of... But that one wasn't reported. Okay. But there was four scenes that, that was active on that day.
0: And all linked to each other?
1: No, yeah, it was all them. It was the same or group that did it. Then there was an attack on a police vehicle where they ambushed police officers in Boysons That can be linked to them.
0: Same night? Or-
1: uh, no, a couple of, about a month later. Well, then the kidnapping for ransom started. I think there was four cases that can be tied to them. Then there was the attack at the, at the mosque in 2019. That was also money because the guy stood up and he was denouncing, basically, ISIS. And he was talking against ISIS. They know now that we've tied some of the weapons to the New Year's shooting. They know that there's been a lot of development. So they're expecting raids very soon. The Tal cell is it's a huge
0: group. How many are we talking of?
1: Not a lot. To pay in the 60s, but it's, they, they split up into smaller groups. So they've got Somalians, Congolese, South Africans. They don't really mix with each other. They do operations for the bigger picture, but crime, crime stuff. The problem is they don't claim it. So they don't claim anything as, of course, ISIS gave that directive a couple of years back. What not, not to claim. Not to claim. Claim on your groups. Claim on your WhatsApp groups, or on your Telegram groups, or on your Facebook groups, or on your, mm. your game groups, or wherever you do want to. Claim there, but don't claim it openly to people.
0: What is that to avoid drawing attention? Yeah.
1: So they, they've gone from from doing a uh, operation like the New Year shooting, and then claim it as an a, a ISIS operation. ISIS is there. The directive is don't do that anymore. Don't. In your group celebrated yeah you've killed the Mouyazin, but don't bring it out mm-hmm. and let your, your operations also look like normal crime they would they would do the training they will go out and kill people in the street just look like a botched hijacking they shoot at someone that drives out of a, a brothel or something shoot him and drive away so it looks like a botched hijacking doesn't look like an op- like a, a proper ISIS operation, but they claim it on their little groups and on their in the in in their in their community
0: basically. So on New Year's Eve 2020, between one o'clock in the morning and three o'clock in the, in the morning, a group of gunmen who we've been told were about eight driving in two different cars. They were driving in a black BMW X five and they were driving in a white Nissan NP two hundred. And these two teams from a single cell, ISIS cell, uh launched their attack. They targeted uh Poppy's Restaurant in Melville, they targeted Jolly Cool's Pub in Parkhurst, which was the first attack, and then they targeted the revelers, New Year's Eve revelers, who were having a party on Mary Fitzgerald Square, uh, and they targeted them from the M1 bridge that flies over the, the, the square. And the last place that they targeted was a pub in the CBD, or actually a Shabin in the CBD in, in Johannesburg. So these group of gunmen in two different cars, they were armed with AK-47s. They were armed with shotguns. They were armed with a sniper's rifle and various, um, handguns. They opened fire and within two hours had unleashed a complete reign of terror. Um, Sources that we've spoken to within the Hawks and crime intelligence counter-terrorism units have detailed for us exactly how these attacks occurred, um, the extensive planning that went into it, um, how weapons were specifically chosen, the people who were involved or suspected to have been involved because this case is still under investigation. So while we, we as the Times Life investigation team know quite a bit about who is allegedly behind the attacks because these people haven't been arrested yet or not all of them have been arrested. Um, we, <clears throat> we can't divulge obviously for, for security reasons and for tipping off the, the assailants. Uh, We can't divulge too much. But What the cops have said is that this was a a complete and utter um, act of terror.
2: There have been mounting investigations into the expansion of terror attacks in South Africa. One such investigation led to the discovery of an arms cache which included suicide bomb vests, hand grenades, assault rifles and explosives the weapons were found in a randberg building's basement in october of 2017. police and hawk sources speaking about the new year's eve shootings said the linkages to islamic state were made after breakthroughs in cell phone and ballistic evidence the shootings which killed two and left 23 injured were not initially linked to terrorist activities because they had not been publicly claimed by the organization and no initial evidence pointed towards a terror attack. Times Live, given insight into police and hawks' anti-terrorism investigations, can reveal that there were eight gunmen behind the New Year's Eve shootings and that those gunmen were part of a larger group of Islamic State cells in South Africa whose members number over 300. A police source also informed us that a Clip River cell has also been tied to four kidnappings for ransom, the murder of three Ethiopians and the assault of six Ethiopian businessmen, all who spoke out against the Islamic State. Here Petunia Rutz and Mortimer Williams were both injured during the New Year's Eve shootings. They spoke to Times Live while still recovering in hospital, totally unaware that their attack was actually a terror attack. Just
1: because you went out, I did absolutely nothing wrong. I went out as any other citizen of South Africa. And I think that is very, very, very disturbing. I think something was taken from me. Freedom of movement has been taken from me. I don't want to be seen in crowds anymore. I'm scared to be in a crowd. I am scared actually just to start a conversation with anyone, my trust has really
4: been placed into jeopardy.
0: And I heard what sounded to me at the time like massive crackers until I felt the thud in my, my lower back and uh, which took me to the ground and I went, that's not a cracker, that is a gunshot. And from there people just started dropping left, right and centre. To chaos. I felt like I was die.
2: These attacks appear random and affect all sectors of society, whether you work and live in Santon or in Alex or Soweto. Also increasingly targeted since 2019 are Islamic religious leaders trying to stop the Islamic State from targeting their worshippers for recruitment. Graham spoke to several such religious leaders who we will keep anonymous for their own safety. We're going to play you a short clip of one such member whose voice we've altered for his own protection.
5: We, we, we promote the freedom mm. of equality, justice. Is that why you're speaking at now? That is, yes. Yeah. yeah. And, but now in a sense, when you see something went go wrong, mm. you have to you have to worry about it. Mm. And personally I don't bring Quran and then put it there and say what they say is wrong. <coughs> but in a sense if there is somebody come and they then kill because of some a reason he, he, he accumulates mm. I believe is not right. Christianity and the Muslim living it together. Oh yeah. That's a communion. It's not a problem according to Islam. Mm. And uh, you can't just declare jihadist the if it, there is no threat. If it if not threat. If there is no threat. Oh. That, is he, that is what the that is what the was believing. So it's it's, it's really it's a threat to the oh. community and it is worry. People's life is really dangerous. That is why I told you it's very risky this manner now, unless there is a a trustworthy
0: protection. Sorry, say again.
5: Trustworthy protection from the government. Mm. The community members they are willing to expose. They are willing to cooperate with the intelligence but seemingly like uh, now there is no trust.
0: In terms of why ISIS is targeting Muslim communities here in South Africa, I don't think it's a thing that they're specifically targeting Muslim communities. What ISIS is doing is targeting anybody who opposes them. It doesn't matter your religion, it doesn't matter your ethnicity, uh, your race, your creed, your gender. If you stand up and speak, Out against ISIS publicly. You will be targeted. And this is what we've seen with a number of communities here in South Africa who disagree with ISIS's ideology, who don't believe in what they stand for. And we've seen it with the Oromo community, which is an Ethiopian community living here in in South Africa and mostly in Gauteng. Since 2016, where different leaders, including religious leaders, have stood up and spoken out to, against ISIS and ISIS members who have tried to come into their communities, radicalize mosques, Islamic schools, uh, the community in general. And the punishment for that was was death. I mean, we interviewed a leader within the Yoroma community who begged and pleaded with us not to name him because of the repercussions and the deadly repercussions. And what he told us was, absolutely horrifying I mean looking at since 2017 2018 2019 and 2020 at least five murders of the community of community members um, as I said now religious leaders business leaders uh, highly respected elders who within the community um, and as well as those who've been murdered they've been Dozens of families who've been chased out of the community, who've been forced to flee for their lives, been forced to flee not only Gauteng, but South Africa. And so, so yeah, this is just one of the communities who's been targeted by ISIS for, for speaking out against them. And the results, what we've discovered, are, are absolutely deadly, deadly consequences for speaking out against ISIS.
2: These crimes really began in 2018 and have escalated in 2019 and 2020. But South Africa is not a hotbed for terrorist attacks just yet. Instead, we represent the Islamic State purse and training ground. While local cells do occasionally undertake attacks of their own, their mission in South Africa is to train up new recruits, and help gather funds to promote the expansion of the Islamic State across the continent. Kenyan financial and security authorities are working with the Hawks Financial Intelligence Center and international security agencies to probe how 12 billion rand has since 2018 reportedly been smuggled from South Africa through organized crime networks and their terrorism partners.
0: And interestingly, what also emerged was the involvement of ISIS in organized crime syndicates. They seem to have a symbiotic relationship when it comes to financing, um, securing finances. Although their goals are different, the mechanisms that they use to get to their goals are very similar. So what, what Jack did for, for the team and I was to paint a picture of how ISIS operates in South Africa and shows that it is getting bigger. They're is a huge support network uh, of sympathizers from business people, uh, from people who feel disenfranchised with the the state of the country. Um, yeah, there's the support and, and sympathizers all over the place. It's women, children, people like you and I, every day, Joe Blog, rich, poor, doesn't matter. And the, the support network is across the country, which is really, really alarming.
2: The finances are reportedly mainly smuggled through third-party payment providers operating in the informal sector, including spaza shops and retail outlets, who work with remitters. Remitters facilitate the non-commercial transfer of money for people globally. Security sources say that the money has allegedly funded terrorism in Kenya, Democratic Republic of Congo and Somalia. Another terrorism financing investigation is also looking into the financing of alleged Islamic State operations in Mozambique by KwaZulu-Natal-based supporters. WhatsApp's seen by Times Live show communications between the leader of an alleged KwaZulu-Natal Islamic State-linked organized crime group and a DRC-based Islamic State figure and reveal the alleged financing from South Africa to Mozambique. According to the Financial Intelligence Center's Legal and Policy Division Executive Manager, Peter Schmidt, detecting and infiltrating those supporting international terrorist organizations through funding, particularly when the informal financial sector in South Africa is used, is a major challenge for government. South
4: Africa is used as a a conduit. We uh, We are really reliant on there are also, the information that can be shared with us from authorities in our, in our neighboring countries. We we can often see one side of a transaction if the transaction flows through regulated financial institutions, uh, so through our money remittance businesses or our banks. Um, and they would pick up on some indicators where the transaction flow doesn't really make sense to them, but they would not have enough information about the source of the funding if it comes from a, a neighboring country. Uh, So those are all challenges uh, if if one deals with the regulated uh, industry. We also have a real presence of um, an informal industry of of money, which doesn't flow through regulated financial institutions. So again, from an investigative point of view, that's very difficult to infiltrate and and investigate. Um, So our real problem lies with what's truly the the informal market. Those are the ones that are not licensed, not regulated. that actually operates outside of and choose to operate outside of the the regulatory framework and by definition therefore operating illegally those would be the ones where we don't have any engagement uh, at all because they, they want to stay away from the authorities mm-hmm. as far as possible if if we were to engage with with uh, people in that market we, we would be exposing the fact that they're operating without the author, authorization and they would then possibly be sanctioned uh by, by the reserve bank um so they, they're trying to avoid any contact with, with the authorities our guess is it's not um It's not a large number of operators, but they uh, are well entrenched and they are well situated to do business along specific corridors. So you would have a corridor between South Africa and the Far far East, um, and you would have these informal remitters operating in that corridor. You would have a corridor between South Africa and the Middle East, uh, and you would have... Some of these, the, the informal, uh, unit is operating in that corridor. And those are sort of the ones that would, uh, are of concern to us, both from a terror financing and an organized crime perspective. I mean, un- unless you are uh, of a certain nationality or with identified uh, identify with a certain uh, community that would use those corridors, um, it's, it's very difficult to infiltrate those and get a sense of how many operators there are and, what's the size of their business is, what's the volume of the funds that flow in, in those car We would only have a, a, a sense of what flows in the reg- regulated market, mm. the, the regulated markets are the same variables. Yeah. Um, but and we would know what, what flows in, in that market, the rest would be an estimate. Um, from a tariff financing point of view, the inflows would be uh, those instances where South Africa is used as a conduit, where the money, the, f- the fundraising happens in, 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 in a neighboring country and then. Uh, The neighboring country may not be as well connected to wherever the destination is. So the money comes to South Africa and uh, uses the the corridor from South Africa outwards.
2: The expansion of the Islamic State is the goal for these groups. And if they're not thwarted, South Africa could find that it has a very serious problem on its hands. For more on this story, check out the writing by the Times Live Investigations team. Simply search the term Islamic State on the Times Live website and read as much as you can get your hands on. If you enjoyed this form of storytelling and like this podcast, please take a second to leave us a review on your podcast streaming app and share the show with your friends. This is the best way to ensure that others find the show and will allow us to keep producing episodes just like this for you. For Boots on the Ground, I am your host, Paige Muller. Audio for this episode was gathered by Graham Hoskin. Scripting, editing, and sound design done by Paige Muller. Writing and investigations by the Times Live investigation team. Production by Times Live Podcasts, a division of Arena Holdings.